AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Hey, Kim. I heard there's something going on with Kubernetes again. Yes, yes. Kubernetes is in the spotlight again, Stan. So um, uh, it's all the things that you should know about installing Kubernetes and the different security uh, hazards of it that we should watch out for. Uh, first of all, um, Kubernetes itself, um, there are uh, three, you know, there are uh, minor versions to Kubernetes and um, quarterly Kubernetes always does an update. So um, those that uh, manage the Kubernetes should always update to the latest version because they get rid of all of the security hazards of our patching and uh, whatever other bug fixes that are in Kubernetes on a quarterly basis. The first step they want you to do is to uh, set up your role-based access control or RBAC um, to your application with applications or within Kubernetes, uh, your Kubernetes as a whole uh, for role-based access. Um, the second thing they want you to do is to make sure your security teams and when they're uh, installing new applications deployments to look for uh, co configuration uh, changes to the application, whether it's going to open up new holes or whatever it may be. They want you to make sure you look at that because a lot of, a lot of uh, application developers will install new applications, whereas they don't know what they're um, opening up within opening up uh, for Kubernetes. Finally, you want to put in network uh, tools um, to look at your different Kubernetes settings, or whether it's Helm-based, or um, to check for new CVEs that are out there within your applications or within Kubernetes. There are different tools you can use, and so. Um, that's, that's what you want to look at. Kubernetes as a whole um, also uh, allows you to install third-party um, applications. Those applications can, uh, just like an Nginx controller or whatever it may be that opens up ports to the internet, you want to make sure those third-party applications are locked down and that you're not allowing anything in because there's too much of malware that's being um, targeted for Kubernetes uh, containers and so forth. So you want to put in the necessary tools in place to, um, uh, to check your platform, to check those platforms. Those tools can scan, make sure your containers are up to, up to par, your Kubernetes versions are up to par, and so forth. So those are the things that you want to look at. Now, Kubernetes is a platform for deploying basically like other applications to a whole bunch of servers. Is that right? Kubernetes as a whole has a version within itself that um, affords different uh, bugs within, the within that application itself. But then the third-party applications on top of that is what, you know, you want to make sure that your um, uh, you're you're watching out for, but Kubernetes itself allows for root access. So that's why they want you to set up role-based access um, in order to restrict whoever accesses that 
um, cluster. Kim, do you know if there are other orchestration platforms like Kubernetes that could also benefit from these types of security settings? I think all cloud uh, orchestrated uh, platforms have the same issues. You just, you know, I think Kubernetes is, is targeted more because it's more uh, mostly used uh, when you're using Docker and so forth for your containers. Um, and Docker is, you know, also um, Docker is all also targeted as well. So it's the containers that houses these VMs that um, hackers are looking for. But a lot of customers are using are pushing toward uh, um, Kubernetes because of the, the wide support in Azure for um, AKS clusters. Um, and, and AWS for the EKS cluster. So since they're, you know, wild, more widely used um, and supported more so, that is why they're they're more mostly the target for them. With Kubernetes, you a, a lot of customers will expose their their their. Well, I won't say openly expose it or knowingly expose it, um, but there are. Um, there are applications to put in place for Kubernetes when you're setting up like an ingress control because you have to have because it's separate from a compute cluster. So you have your, your, compute, your compute cluster and then you have your Kubernetes, which is, you know, uh, in the background where you have to have ingress routes set up to get there. But when people set up their ingress gateway or their ingress, so they'll use Istio. I don't know if you've heard of Istio. So they'll use Istio gateways to get to send their ingress routes to if they don't have a standard load balancer that could allow the traffic to get to them. So in a compute cluster, you have uh, a load balancer that you can send traffic to your compute cluster within uh, Azure or AWS, you can use a load balancer. But as far as uh, Kubernetes goes, it's uh, it's not uh, accessible unless you set up an ingress controller and ingress routes to it, right? It's kind of like where we always tell everyone, like, don't expose your administrative interface to the internet. So I think with Kubernetes, it's kind of like an administrative interface for all of your Docker containers to be deployed. So you really have to be careful how you allow that to be exposed. You got to right. take precautions at the firewall level, or at the load balancer level, you got to really segregate your administrative interface um, from your kind of data plane or I guess application plane. Um, exactly. So I think it's really, really good advice. Thank you. Exactly. So Stan, what can you tell me about uh, Gmail today? Well, I was uh, reading this article uh, from Brian Krebs. Uh, Everyone probably knows him. He's a very well-respected um, uh, reporter, does a lot of security research as well. And he was kind of going back and remembering how he has a, a Gmail account that he's had for 16 years. In fact, he's had this Gmail account since it was possible to have the very first one. And at that time, you could create really short uh, Gmail accounts. You know, there was no tags that were taken yet. Um, so he created one that was really short and was like a common hacking term. And uh, ever since he did that, uh, he's noticed some patterns and he kind of described them in this, in this write-up. Um, and I thought it was interesting. Uh, I didn't realize it, first of all, uh, but 
there is this whole like community or the, I don't know if it's like a fringe or an underground community of people who like to have on, on these popular services like Twitter or Gmail, like really short usernames. That seems to be some sort of like a holy grail uh, for some of these communities. And what they do is they actually try to take over those accounts. Now, I think we've talked about this on ThreadTrack before, and it's definitely been written about um, quite a bunch. Uh, but here, Brian kind of dissects what happens when you have one of these accounts that's uh, where you have like an email that, that's very short and possibly very popular, but also maybe a lot of people mistype. So he noticed there were these two behaviors. The first is there's a lot of people trying to take his account over. So there was a lot of like emails he was getting that were related to people trying to like, you know, inappropriately log in. But the other thing that he noticed is that there were a lot of people for some reason misusing this address as if it was theirs. So what are some of the ways you could do that? Well, for example, if you have like Yahoo or Gmail, there's a way to be able to recover your email account by providing a second one. And so, um, so what some people have done is actually type in this, his email uh, in an email that they don't own as the email account for their um, secondary access. So if like they would ever forget their password. Also, he was able to get access to, because people did it, it's not like he, you know, he, he did it himself, uh, but people would register for like tax accounting software or different like app stores, like the Apple Store or iTunes, for different password managers, banking sites, they would use this email address that wasn't theirs and they would register with it and basically he would be asked to verify these accounts. Um, now, you know, if you had this power, what would you do? So obviously like for someone who is a, a malicious like adversary, you would probably, I imagine, try to take some of these accounts over or do some of these things. Uh, but what he originally tried to do is actually he tried to reach out to the people who were doing this and he tried to let them know that, hey, I think you did this by accident, you did this by mistake and you should fix it. And what he's found is it's actually, the way I read his article, it hasn't been that helpful to tell people. In fact, he, he kind of noticed that some people took it the wrong way that he was a hacker and trying to hack them and were even like threatening to take action against him and still didn't really fix the problem. Brian, as a reporter, I think he, he likes to try to get to the bottom of things, but I could tell here he was really at a loss for why people uh, would do things like this and didn't seem like there was any like general assessment that he could make. But the one thing I enjoyed about this write-up um, uh, that he had is really reading the comments down below because other people shared their stories of how they have a, a unique domain name or something that's a short domain name um, and things that they've observed um, as well. And actually they've observed similar things where people, uh, let's say they don't put type in the email address correctly. Or I guess it used to be that you could create an email address uh, on Gmail with periods, uh, but not anymore. You know, now it's like the periods kind of disappear. And so what happens is there's a lot of like aliasing going on where there were a lot of people who were mentioning like they have a very common name, 
like let's say John Smith. So if you have an email address like johnsmith at gmail.com or something like that, uh, then you know there's a lot of people like accidentally using it. Uh, and a lot, many, many people um, in the comment section on Brian's article kind of talked about they had this alternate persona out there somewhere in the world who was living their life. And by just, you know, seeing these typos or these signups for different services, they were seeing how their life was playing out over the years like they were getting married or they met somebody or they're having kids or they're opening up a, a new bank account or something like that. And I found it fascinating just to read about that. There was also a few people who reported like, what if I'm doing something wrong that's causing me to get these unexpected emails? Like is somebody trying to come after me? Um, but finally, the thing that like seemed to be pretty consistent is that the people who did try to reach out to the um, uh, individuals who were misusing the accounts, like for something like serious, they didn't seem to have a good success rate for reaching out to people and, and like letting them know that they have a problem. In fact, I, I don't know if it's because those are the things you always remember, but of all the documented things in the comment section at least, it seemed to be there was many, many stories where people were like, well, I try to reach out and they didn't really, they, they actually took it the wrong way and they, you know, they sent me an email back basically being very, very upset with me and they didn't, they thought I was trying to hack them or I was trying to fish them or I was trying to fool them. So uh, very interesting piece. Um, a couple of important things to learn there, I think. Uh, for example, you know, take your email accounts like very seriously. Don't, uh, you know, don't type in, especially for like legitimate accounts, you know, make sure you double check the emails that you're entering um, to ensure um, that you're entering them the right way, that they go where they intend. And then if you do have a secondary email address somewhere, you know, maybe let it be an email address of your like friend or spouse or parent or you know, somebody that you know um, so you're not having to make one up that might exist, or if it doesn't exist yet, might exist one day, uh, which is, I guess, an important observation. Like, just because something isn't there today doesn't mean that it won't be there later. Um, yeah, really, really interesting story. So, so this email address or Gmail uh, account that he had, so when he set that up, so when someone out there tries to use the same name or just put in a, a bogus name, um, wouldn't wouldn't Gmail say, oh, this account already exists? Yes, but what he found was that people were doing it to like other service providers. So like sometimes they were wanting to provide a bogus account with their bank. I don't know why you would do that, uh, but for some reason they would do that and then, you know, the verification email would go to him. Um, and the same would happen for like other things. Now, a bunch of the stuff he mentioned was probably like uneventful, you know, like a Pandora account or something like that. But then some of the things he mentioned I was quite surprised about, uh, like the banking and things like that. He said that at some point he was able to potentially have access for a very like wealthy person's retirement account, you know. And for many, many years, uh, he was able to do that. 
and he has to convince the person to like really like double check that, uh, make sure that they were doing that. So it, it's interesting because you know people are thinking it, it it's it's very sad that you have to be on alert all the time because of phishing emails and you know people that are trying to take your credentials and so forth. Um, so it, it it's it's amazing because yeah when he said he tried to reach out they're thinking that they're trying to he's trying to spam them or or, or sorry or fish uh, for information from them so. Yeah, it, it, the times that we live in now, you have to be alert. You have to be on alert because you never know who's doing what to your, you know, your credentials. Yeah, I think the most important time to be alert in this story is when you're setting up your accounts, like really make sure you've got that email address in there correctly. And I think that's why a lot of really important sites that let you register, sometimes they actually ask you for your email address um, twice. Um, now, somebody in the comment section actually brought up a really interesting point that I didn't consider. They said that there a lot of times you have to verify your email, but there's no option to say, I didn't do this. Um, it's like, um, you know, that's not my email address or I didn't initiate this action. So that might be something to think about. I know probably a lot of it probably happens automatically as part of the process. Probably if you don't click mm -hmm. verify. You know, you you it probably doesn't work, but it's interesting to if if they had such an option, what would be their the responses like? Um, and probably those companies would understand that. Yeah, I guess thinking about it deeper, they might also have people misclicking on links from time to time. <laughs> so it seems like uh, you know, just playing devil's advocate back and forth, we might be here for a while. Hey, Kim, I heard there's a story about BlackBot. Yes, yes. BlackBot, is, uh, I think you've probably heard about it, Stan. So BlackBot is one of the, the largest financial um, companies for um, uh, nonprofit organization. It provides uh, the f financial backing or to allow people to, to fund these uh, particular nonprofit organizations. So it collects this information from uh, the, the, the wider community, uh, whereas people donate to different uh, nonprofit organizations. So it, it, it houses that information. Well, um, earlier this year, um, Blackboard was um, a victim of a, a ransomware attack. So the uh, malicious actors uh, actually, they actually paid the ransom uh, for this attack, um, but they it it actually happened in February of this year. So they found that it happened in February on February seventh. They didn't find it until May fourteenth, and then the consumers did not find out until June sixteenth of this year. Um, and this is this is not the only. Um, uh, financial uh, organization that got hit that that houses information for nonprofits as well. Um, MIP uh, was also targeted, and um, so with Blackball, um, they 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 found that it wasn't you know a, a, a target in the cloud that they didn't attack anything of their cloud resources in either. 
Azure or AWS. They never found that. I think it was at uh, some other site that the um, malicious actors um, actually um, pulled their data and was able to attack them by that particular data center. Well, um, they didn't want to disclose how much of the ransom that they paid. They, they, they refused to, to tell anyone how much ransom they paid, um, but they wanted to get back um, get back the information from the, the malicious actors and to see if they really actually had any data from their, um, from their uh, network. And so they provided that information and they said they wanted this money, blah, 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 and they actually paid the ransom after investigating for weeks and weeks at a time with the FBI. They had to, once they found out in May uh, that they had actually uh, been attacked, and then they started doing the investigation, the attribution, and so forth, they found that um, where um, the actors had actually came in, where they came in from, um, but uh, they they didn't want to tell any any of their consumers about it or their do donors uh, to the um, different organizations that they donate to um, about it until they really researched everything. And so I think they were uh, a lot of the consumers were uh, or donors were unhappy uh, because they waited so long. But they had to do the initial investigation before they could come back and say what what actually happened and. None of your data was um, put out on the dark web, on the dark web, and other places because they had to search the dark web to see if their information was out there, and so forth. So, yeah. So uh, this was uh, an interesting article um, from ransomware attacks, and it, it's really uh, telling of people, or uh, <laughs> it's really telling of malicious people, uh, rather. Uh, to attack uh, organizations that are for nonprofit. This is for charity. These are charitable organizations. And this is one of the largest, you know, uh, technology companies um, for uh, nonprofit organizations. I think it, the it, story it, teaches us that no matter how big or small you are, if you're for profit or nonprofit or what mission you support, Kind of cybersecurity is a very important component of any business model today, and it has to really be thought about uh, before something like this happens. Um, you know, I, as you were explaining the story, I think so many things jumped out at me, like um, the time to detect the attack, um, mm -hmm. the fact, you know, how the attack was handled, and, uh, you know, the time to notify. These are all like interesting things um, that, you know, that, you know, at least in this case, we could see how they played out. I know though, for a lot of businesses, you know, there are specific requirements of uh, how fast they should notify or um, certain things that they do. And also, you know, thinking back like two years ago, the advice had always been never pay the ransom. And it's interesting that in the past probably few months, but a year for sure, we've just been hearing more and more stories of ransoms being paid, which probably speaks to 
a couple of different items, but one of them is like the company, it's definitely a major situation for the company when they're like, you know what, we're beyond even considering not paying this, this uh, ransom. Like we must pay this ransom in order to get back to business. And I think, um, I feel like people should think about that, you know, the, you know, when considering their security policy, when considering um, how to protect certain things. I think you, it's better to be discussing the protections than discussing if you should or shouldn't pay a ransom. Um, you know, or you 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 gotta like budget those things in to whatever your business plan is or your business process. Um, so, you know, you don't have to end up paying a ransom. Just a lot of really interesting things that you pointed out that kind of resonated with me. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and, and you're saying that they should be, you know, have their cybersecurity up to par. And and, and that's, this is interesting about the article is that they, they practice this due diligence. And, you know, it, it comes back to your mind that you can't be 100% secure. You can only do your due diligence in trying to stay secure, and and you know that you're the the largest technology uh, company and provider that houses this financial information for these nonprofits. So they're practicing this due diligence. They're part of all these different cyber uh, organizations and so forth, and they have assessments done on a regular. All of these things but then they still get attacked by ransom thieves, you know? So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, um, it, it's interesting because, you know, we can only do as much as we can, but there's always that, that 1% chance. You can't be 100%, but that's 1% chance that you could get hacked. Right, yes. And that's why I think we always recommend, um, no matter who you are, you know, a small-time developer or a large corporation, to think about like defense in depth and you know that, you know, your measures will fail, you know, nothing is in, impenetrable, but hopefully the combination of your protections all through into your system is layered in such a way that at least one of them will work or will catch the attack or will right. catch something before it becomes a, a big problem. I'm, um, I, I hadn't read about the story, but I'm kind of curious who's behind it because we've heard like very similar campaigns um, all through the year uh, being discussed. So I wonder if it's similar adversaries or even the same ones as before. Right. Yes, very interesting. Um, and, and because because I I had gotten an email about, because I, I give all the time, I'm always giving to, to charity. And so I got an email about Blackboard and, uh, and I read like, oh, what? It's still going ongoing, and so I never received anything in July, but I just received something, you know, last week. And so it's like, oh, well, let me go back out there and see if something's still going on about it. And I saw it on, you know, out there that is still ongoing for, you know, other uh, nonprofit organizations are now, you know, uh, detected and, and, and finding out about, you know, this particular um uh, ransomware attack. It's uh, very unfortunate, but I think, you know, hopefully we all can learn from this experience and kind of see, I think sometimes with situations like this, you just kind of have to see what happens and it teaches you like some of the best practices of maybe what to do, 
or to do differently next time. Uh, it's good to also hear that they worked with law enforcement uh, to try to uh, take action and uh, investigate this a little bit more broadly. So right. I hope that one day the adversaries who did this can really pay for their crimes. Hey, Kim. So I have the internet weather for this week, and uh, uh, I'd like to start with the top 10 most pro ports. So as you know, we like to measure the uh, cyber threat activity on the internet or just the ebbs and flows of what's going on. Uh, and one of the ways we do that is by looking at the uh, port activity, uh, the scanned ports specifically uh, that are being looked for. And this first chart here, it, it showcases the top 10 ports that uh, people are interested on in, on the internet and are scanning for. And everything in this chart, it's, it's basically, uh, unfortunately, it's normal. Uh, so there's a lot of interest in port 23 TCP, which is Telnet associated with a lot of Mirai-like uh, botnet activity usually, or 445, unfortunately associated with like WannaCry, and all the ports that are uh, very uh, well known. So the port I want to cover today, uh, which I just want to kind of take a peek at it, is port 8545 TCP. I had kind of forgotten what this was until I looked at it, um, even though it kind of appears in the top 10 pretty frequently. Um, so let's look at that together. Uh, so this first chart here, it goes back 90 days and it shows the amount of, of scanning activity on this port uh, by anyone. You could see there's like millions um, of uh, events per hour, um, every, every hour, uh, but the activity is kinda, it's kinda up and down on some days, not really like predictable. So when it's like this, I kinda wanna take a look at it a little bit deeper and see uh, who's doing it or how frequent is this or how many people are engaged in it. And so when we do that, um, the chart kind of looks like this. You could see it, uh, it's kind of it's kind of an uninteresting chart, except maybe in a few spots here. Um, but there's not that many IP addresses uh, doing scanning for it, uh, for, uh, for this port. So what are the spikes for? These spikes, I actually took a look at them because I was interested just like you. And it turns out that um, these IP addresses are related to a well-known um, like a research company um, that does uh, scanning on the internet to find out what's open or what's available. Um, so these spikes are, uh, you can see it very periodic. So it looks like maybe once a week or once every two weeks or something like that this company goes and tries to figure out like what's going on on the internet on this port. Uh, so all of these IP addresses um, are related to that, uh, to that scanning activity. So I, like I mentioned, I always forget uh, what is port 8545 TCP. So I had to look this one up and when I did, it actually turns out this is very well known. Uh, we've actually covered it on ThreatTrack before as well. Um, but there's a, uh, there's a product out there called the, um, it's an Ethereum wallet that you can get for your cryptocurrency. So it's Ethereum cryptocurrency wallet. And um, as a product, as part of having cryptocurrency, you need some software installed for your wallet to keep track of your cryptocurrency. And this particular software, it opens up port 8545, um, which is where it does like JSON RPC. And uh, I guess somebody had a few years ago discovered that you can actually like 
attack this port and maybe transfer money or whatever. And so now they're obviously like scanning the internet looking for this. Um, as you could tell before, you know, there's a lot of scanning, but it all seems to be, uh, you know, it's just kind of happening all of the time. There's somebody always scanning for it. So if you have port 8545 or if you have an Ethereum wallet or something like that, you just got to make sure, uh, get, make doubly sure that you don't have, um, it's basically like a management interface almost. Um, then you don't have this exposed, and so nobody can get to it. Check your firewall settings and things like that. In general, if you're at home and you have your laptop, probably want to make sure you have a router in front of your modem, uh, like a Wi-Fi hotspot, because that'll actually protect you from this type of scanning most of the time, uh, unless you did something special. Um, so moving on, uh, the next part of the incident weather is the top 10 most sources probing report. So this is the same thing. We're still looking for scanning activity by ports, but this time we're trying to consider uh, what is the, uh, uh, what are the ports where there's a lot of IP addresses uh, doing the scanning. So uh, this week, it's all the same ports as before. Uh, these represent generally either botnets or ports of high interest where a lot of people are interested in them all at once. Um, I wanted to take a look at port 1433. I think it's associated with uh, MS SQL. Uh, now there's a lot of, over the years, a lot of vulnerabilities with that port, but we, since it's in the top 10, and we kind of understand what it is. We never really look at it, uh, but I want to check it out a little bit more, and I want to see if there's anything interesting uh, about it. Now, because this port is so well known, uh, you could see that I, I look back five years, what the scanning activity will look like on this port over five years. And these are the number of IP addresses doing the scanning. So you can see back in the day, kind of like five years ago is not really back in the day, but five years ago, uh, you could see there were only, you know, let's say less than a thousand uh, computers per hour scanning on this port. But more recently, you could see there's, you know, almost 20,000 IP addresses at a time in some hours. Um, doing scanning and looking for something on this port. Now, there's a lot of things you could look for. You could look for brute forcing. You can maybe try to get the password, or you could look for, um, uh, you know, like a vulnerability that exists. Um, so I have to assume that that's uh, that's what you know is being sought after here. Um, <clears throat> looking at it a little bit closer, just to look at the 90-day activity, just to see what has recently changed rather than looking back five years and seeing kind of like this big picture. Uh, you can see things are actually like, I guess this is called whole home. You know, things are going along as usual. Um, there's not much variation in the number of IP addresses engaged in this. There's anywhere between, you know, 9,000 to 15,000 IP addresses at a time doing scanning. Um, so um, it's very well known, steady kind of threat. Um, it should remind you if you have this port or this service uh, or a server that has something to do with SQL, you should just think about how it's deployed, make sure your firewall policies are secure. If you're putting anything in the cloud, just ensure and understand that you have that firewall policy locked down. I know that a lot of cloud providers now, they'll make it a little bit harder for you to make a mistake, but it won't be impossible. Um, so you should, really, uh, you should really just double check any firewall rules if you're setting up a deployment of a server in the cloud, 
just make sure that you understand like how it works and what all the terms on the page mean. I noticed that there's a lot of, you know, it's become really easy to get a server up and running, but because of that, if you're not familiar with it, uh, with some of the terms even, you can make some mistakes. Um, so uh, I decided, it's something I usually do, and I don't know what image this evokes in your mind, but for me, I wanted to check out like where are these IP addresses that are scanning coming from? Who's doing the scanning and where they're coming from? And I, it took the last four hours of activity, I think, and it's about, you know, just a little over 13,000 IP addresses scanning all at the same time. To your point, to your point, Stan, uh, I, I, when they, when uh, people set up their networks and uh, what you allow in via your firewall, you make sure your firewall is doing some type of inspection or have, um, you know, the, so you have the MySQL 1433 port open. You want to make sure that, you know, you don't get any SQL injection to look, you know, to inspect those packets and so forth. Uh, also, if, if you don't have to, if uh, companies don't have to allow certain ports open uh, via the Internet, then they shouldn't. If it's, you know, if you can keep it internal, keep as much traffic internal as you can now that you can, you know, uh, connect to uh, certain clouds via uh, private connections instead of over the Internet. At first, you could, everything was over the Internet, but now you can connect privately within your networks and, and on their backbones and don't have to go over the Internet. Yes. You know, when I look at this chart, it reminds me of a couple of things. First of all, I think it's saying, uh, hello, this is the internet, and I want to know if you have port 1433 open, because it's pretty much everyone is interested in this portal all over the world, and there's certainly a lot of hotspots as well. And the second thing, it actually reminds me of the Kubernetes story that you mentioned. You know, 1433 is like an administrative interface, and we always tell everyone, like, make sure you lock down your administrative interfaces out there and things like that. Uh, and it reminded me very similar, and it's slightly different, uh, because you're not dealing with firewalls necessarily with Kubernetes. Kubernetes is like an administrative interface as well, um, and people should lock that down. So I think it's like a, a, a repeated theme for us uh, on the show in general is definitely for any special purpose port, for any special like administrative interface, whatever it is, port 8545 for your Ethereum wallet, or your Kubernetes cluster management server, or your SQL administrative port. Make sure you lock it down. Don't let things, you know, ensure your firewall policy is sound and secure, and you really understand how things are deployed. Because if you don't, this chart should help you see that there are a lot of people looking to get into your environment. And some of the, like even that ransomware attack, we don't know how it started, but it could have started as simply as something like this. Um, so I guess that's the internet weather for today. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, and if any of our viewers, if you guys have um, uh, suggestions for what you'd like to see explored, or if you have any questions or feedback or comments, or if you understand this activity a little bit more, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, feel free to post in the comment section below. Thank you. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.